Whitney Donahue had finished a long work day. He was driving from Northern Virginia to his home in Greencastle, Pennsylvania, and was looking forward to unwinding and sleeping. He was still on Interstate 66 in Virginia when he heard a news report around 11.30 p.m. asking the public to be on the lookout for a blue Chevrolet Caprice with New Jersey tags. Authorities suspected the car was occupied by John Allen Muhammad and a juvenile accomplice who were wanted for questioning in connection with the sniper shootings that claimed the lives of 10 people across the Maryland-Virginia region. Donahue made it to Interstate 70 and headed for the rest area on South Mountain in rural Maryland. He paid closer attention to the vehicles on the road in the off chance he spotted the suspect's car. He pulled into the rest stop around 12.40. There were several 18-wheelers in the other parking lot. In the lot he pulled into, he saw two parked cars. One belonged to the overnight custodian. The second car was backed into a spot facing the restroom, and Donahue recognized it right away as a dark blue Caprice. He saw the license plate and realized he was probably looking at the very car that police were searching for. He called 911 a few times and finally got through to an emergency operator. Go ahead, sir. The 1990 blue Caprice that, the, that you all are looking for uh-huh. is sitting at the rest area, Route 70 westbound on South Mountain. The snipers were sleeping inside the car, oblivious that they'd been spotted and that law enforcement was coming for them. All Donahue could do was stay on the phone and get comfortable. He wasn't going home for a while. Presented by Law & Crime, this is Chasing Ghosts, the hunt for the DC snipers. Six hours earlier, around 6 p.m. on October 23rd, Muhammad made a long-distance call with a prepaid calling card from a payphone in Stevensonville, Maryland, near Annapolis. The six-minute call was to someone in Washington State. It was the last call he made as a free man. Around that time, about 60 miles away in Springfield, Virginia, Billy Sarukas, a senior inspector with the U.S. Marshal Service, who was on a roll connecting the dots and linking Muhammad and his accomplice, Lee Boyd Malvo, to the D.C. area sniper shootings, called the FBI for a favor. He asked for a law enforcement computer sweep. He wanted to see whether any police officer had pulled over or questioned John Allen Muhammad. A fax was soon sent to Sarukas that included information about an encounter between Muhammad and a Baltimore police officer during the early morning hours of October 8th, about 17 hours after a sniper had gunned down 13-year-old Iron Brown in front of his school in Bowie, Maryland. There wasn't much information that Sarukas could glean from the report, so he asked a colleague in Baltimore to start digging. While that was happening, there was the matter of that tree stump in Tacoma, Washington, which I mentioned in Episode 7. Robert Holmes, a friend of Muhammad's, had let Muhammad and Malvo stay at his home four months earlier. Holmes had told the FBI that rounds from a rifle belonging to Muhammad were fired into the stump in his backyard. 
The task force asked that the entire stump be removed and flown east for analysis. It was decided that FBI agents would dress up in flannel shirts and bring the tools they needed to remove the stump. They hoped not to arouse suspicion. Those hopes were dashed because it appeared not everyone got the memo to wear flannel shirts. A few wore jackets with FBI in yellow letters across the back, and the national media caught wind of what was going on in Tacoma. Just before 7.30 p.m., every cable news network aired aerial footage of a crew sawing a tree stump in Tacoma, and worse yet, they were reporting that the operation there was linked to the D.C. sniper case. Those on the sniper task force in Rockville were furious, but no one was more livid about it than Billy Sarukas. I had had a brief discussion with some people at the command post in Rockville a few hours earlier, where I, I knew that they were going to be investigating this, but this was supposed to have been kept very quiet. It didn't take very long, though, and now the media was all over this thing. He was livid because so much of what the snipers were doing seemed to have been dictated by what they were seeing on television. The most worrisome part to me was that we knew from previous events that Mohammed and Malvo were watching the news. They were watching the statements coming from Chief Moose. They were watching the other news. I just felt certain that they probably saw this as well. Sarukas thought that the biggest advantage law enforcement had, the element of surprise, had just evaporated. He had to leave his office to compose himself. Once he felt calm enough to return, someone in the building walked up to him and congratulated him. Sarukas asked him what he was being congratulated for. His colleague told him that that extra digging that he had asked for regarding that encounter Muhammad had with the Baltimore police officer dredged up some valuable information. But probably most importantly to us, he had not only written down the information of the contact, but he also jotted down the license plate number of the car that they were in, which was the Chevy Caprice with New Jersey license plates. So now there was a car, a specific car for people to look for. Records show that the vehicle was registered to Muhammad and that he had bought it in New Jersey. The tag was run through another federal database, one that showed all the times police had checked the tag. A lot of hits turned up. One of the first calls about it was made by a police officer in Gulfport, Mississippi, the night of September 28th, four days before the rash of shootings began in Montgomery County, Maryland. That Gulfport police officer, Scott Courget, spotted it while en route to a call at an auto parts store. Immediately next door to the auto parts store was a very small locals bar. Not much traffic there, not many vehicles there. In fact, I barely knew the thing existed. And when I was going through the parking lot, I noticed the blue Caprice with the out-of-state plates. At such a hole-in-the-wall bar, it really stood out. Courget, now an attorney and law enforcement consultant, was a proactive young police officer at the time. So he was the type who would call in a vehicle that stood out, but he was far from the only one. The story says a lot about cops' intuitions. Why all these cops were seeing this car and running this license plate or were curious about the occupants and maybe didn't have enough to make a stop or a probable cause stop, but there was something that was drawing a lot of attention. Police officers throughout Maryland, D.C., and Virginia would run that tag during the next few weeks, more than a dozen of them, and some would do so in areas close to shooting scenes. 
I disclosed a couple of those Caprice sightings in Episode 1. They were both made by Montgomery County police officers. One came before the first October 2nd shooting, which occurred at a Michaels store, and the second came hours after the second shooting that day, which took place outside the Shopper's Food warehouse. A mall security guard and pizza delivery driver had also seen the car that day, and the latter saw it leaving the scene of the Michael shooting. The next day, one witness reported seeing a car matching that same description in proximity to the Sarah Ramos shooting at Leisure World Plaza. But at that scene, police were entirely focused on what another witness had reported, that he saw a white box truck peeling out of the parking lot. There were also the sightings of a Caprice later that same night near the shooting on Calmia Road in Washington, D.C. Police aired those sightings on their radio during their response to Calmia, which I discussed in Episode 7. But again, those reports did not stick in the minds of those in charge of the D.C. sniper investigation. Not to belabor this point, but the attention on the white box truck or van is what the task force kept emphasizing to the media, and they aired that vehicle description on their broadcasts again and again for weeks, and it most certainly had an effect. Around 9.40 a.m. on October 3rd, the worst day of the rampage, Fred Lofberg was driving northbound on Connecticut Avenue in Kensington near a shell station. It was the same shell station where Lori Ann Lewis Rivera would be shot less than 20 minutes later. Lofberg's attention was drawn to a blue Chevrolet Caprice waiting at a traffic light. I was on my way home for a meeting, so I knew I had to be at home at a certain time, and it was only 10 minutes away. So I did remember exactly what time it was. Well, I'm sitting there now, relaxed at the stoplight at Connecticut Avenue in Knowles. I just noticed this car kind of catty-cornered to my car in the center lane. It was an older car, very similar to one that I was going to receive from my mother-in-law. Just noticed the, you know, the make, model, and, and uh, noticed that it was very stock. However, it had darked-out windows, and I thought, that's unusual. That was the extent of it, until Lofberg got home and heard helicopters flying over his neighborhood. Curious about the commotion, he turned on the local news. And they described the shooting and said what time it was, and I realized I was there shortly before the shooting, and they were looking for box trucks. So I decided, okay, I looked at this Caprice. Now, what was in front of it, or what was beside it, or what was behind it? I was just racking my brain to box trucks, and then did I see any of my drive back? And um, I shared my frustration with my wife. I said, the only thing I can remember is that stupid Caprice. There would be many more witnesses and police sightings related to the Caprice, but no high-ranking official on the task force, including Charles Moose, was urging anyone to think beyond the white box truck lead, which would later morph into a white van lead. That would be something that would haunt Charles Moose for years. He spoke to the National Law Enforcement Museum about this very subject 10 years ago. Certainly a lot of people are quick to say that we wasted 
a lot of time and resources on the white van. I think we just tried to explain to people that we had witnesses tell us that they saw a white van driving quickly away from the scene where one of these shootings occurred. Maybe after we actually said that, you run some risk now that you've actually painted that vision in the mind of a potential witness. You've actually told them to look for one, and now they actually are just following through on what you told them. Uh, you know, I don't have enough educational background to explain that whole psychological piece of could we have created that in the minds of people? Could we have driven that to the front of their minds because we were talking about it? On the night of October 23rd, 2002, after one break in the case after another, there was the matter of obtaining arrest warrants for the suspects. At that point, Muhammad hadn't been charged with anything. There were suspicions, but no evidence. However, the domestic issues with his ex-wife, Mildred, coupled with the suspicion of him being in possession of a high-powered rifle, were enough to issue a warrant on a federal weapons charge. Authorities didn't have much to link Malvo to the shootings either. All they had were fingerprints, but the task force figured out how to work around that. Malvo had left those prints behind at a murder scene in Alabama. The snipers had said they had information about that fatal shooting, so Malvo would be deemed a material witness and subject to detainment. After those hurdles were cleared, warrants were drawn up for Muhammad and Malvo. Just when it seemed everything was going full steam ahead, Billy Sarukas learned there was still a debate at the JOC about whether to release the Caprice information to the media. Sarukas decided not to leave that decision up to the task force. Around 8.30, he personally called his agency's emergency operations center. At 8.47, the Marshals Service released a be-on-the-lookout bulletin with photos of Malvo, Muhammad, the Blue Caprice, and the tag number. I felt strongly that with the coverage coming in from Washington State of digging up the stump and everything, I didn't think there was any need to keep the license plate a secret any longer. Sarukas realized that different agencies were doing different things throughout this investigation. He was not waiting for multi-jurisdictional approval. He believed in his heart that the information needed to get out there. Something else factored into his thinking, and it was a thought shared by David Reichenbaugh, a lieutenant with the Maryland State Police, who was assigned to the JOC. The night of October 23rd, Reichenbaugh was at the JOC speaking up about the need to release the information about the suspects and their car. The feds, the FBI, wanted to keep it very close to the vest. My boss, Colonel Mitchell, at that time of night, I was the highest-ranking trooper at the Joint Operations Center, so basically I was speaking on the colonel's behalf. We wanted it out there because we were so afraid that one of our troopers or a Virginia trooper or any police officer would stop this car not having the information and walk up and get a face full of, of rifle and, and be killed when we had the information that possibly could prevent that. By 9.30 p.m., News reports were already being aired about Muhammad, Malvo, and that blue caprice because their newsrooms caught wind of that bulletin from the U.S. Marshals. At 10.30, the JOC sent out its own report. So by 11 o'clock that night, all local and national outlets were reporting everything. At 11.50, Moose finally held his press conference. He announced the arrest warrant for Muhammad and said that his charges were not related to the sniper shootings, but he may have information material to the case. 
He said Muhammad could be armed, dangerous, and accompanied by a juvenile, who he did not name. Moose took no questions afterward. Less than an hour later, Whitney Donahue called 911 and reported seeing the Caprice in the parking lot of the South Mountain Rest Stop, located on the west end of Frederick County, near the Washington County line. By this time, Reichenbaugh had left Rockville, and he had done so in a huff because of his disagreements with some of the others on the task force. He grabbed a stack of flyers with the snipers' names and faces on it and headed for the highway. He was heading northwest when he got a call from a sergeant notifying him that the Caprice was spotted at the South Mountain rest stop. Reichenbaugh, who spent most of his career in Frederick County, knew the area well. He made a beeline to South Mountain. His speedometer topped 110 miles per hour almost the entire way. Reichenbaugh's cruiser was a dark, unmarked caprice. He made sure to turn on his emergency lights so that no one would see his car and think it was the sniper's car. In the meantime, Donahue was still communicating by phone with the 911 call center. You want me to stay right here in the area or what? Are you at the rest area? I'm sitting at, I kind of pulled a weapon away from them. It looked like there was two, two people sitting in the car. They're in the car? It looked like people sitting there. I didn't, I didn't want to look too close, but I was looking at it. Could you tell if they were male or female? I, no, it was real dark. Okay, just stay in your vehicle if you feel it's safe to stay there. If not, you can go to another location and call us, and we'll get somebody up there, sir. At one point during his hours-long correspondence with police and dispatchers, Donahue drove his van to the lot where the 18-wheelers were parked so that he could be at a slightly higher elevation for better cell reception and be a safer distance from the suspect's car. He was parked about 70 yards from the Caprice. Donahue was eventually connected with the arriving scene commander, David Reichenbaugh. Recently, I met with Reichenbaugh at South Mountain. He drove me around and walked me to the areas where all the action happened that morning. So where were they? The third parking spot. Right here? Right there. Yep. So this is where the Caprice was? Yep. I hope you're enjoying Chasing Ghosts, The Hunt for the D.C. Snipers, a podcast launched earlier this year through Law and Crime and now distributed by the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. This is your host, Tony Holt. If you're liking Chasing Ghosts so far, I encourage you to leave a rating and review. I wanted to take this time to make a special announcement. Next month, following the conclusion of Chasing Ghosts, the Democrat Gazette will launch my next podcast, The Devil of Pope County, America's Worst Family Massacre. Episodes for The Devil of Pope County will be released every Monday beginning in mid-November. The trailer is coming soon. Stay tuned. Reichenbaugh was the highest-ranking trooper at the scene, so it was up to him to devise a strategy and do so quickly. When I got here, we seriously considered, well, let's just bum rush them, Mm -hmm. the three of us. Let's go. And it had entered my mind, and then I got to thinking about this. You know, if these guys are supposedly the snipers that 
honestly we overestimated them to be then we would have been picked off before we had a chance and we had nothing firepower wise to compare to what they had so at that point i thought you know what let's just seal them in there after the troopers at the scene took their position reichenbaugh's next order of business was to shut down the interstate in both directions traffic was redirected at the nearest exits reichenbaugh had a police radio and two cell phones on him with one of those cell phones, he was on the line with Donahue. Reichenbaugh regularly checked in on him to make sure he was a safe distance from the Capris. Also, if Donahue saw one of the occupants of the car leave, or saw the car move, he could immediately let Reichenbaugh know. Under the circumstances, Donahue kept it together. As I remember, he was a little bit excited, but not out of control. And when I was able to talk to him, he pretty much was agreeing to anything that I told him. And, and I told him all along, if you feel uncomfortable in any way or in fear, you tell me, we're going to come and get you. The assets that I had, that's what we would have done. But he said, no, 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 we're fine, we're fine. I said, just stay in your vehicle and be my eyes. There was also the matter of the tractor-trailer drivers inside the perimeter. Some of them turned out to be very useful. One of those drivers started rolling down the exit ramp when he came upon Reichenbaugh and another trooper. And we went up to the truck. TFC Smith had his shotgun. I had my sign on, and I had my big flashlight showing it in the... And I said, I want to see your hands. And he says, Jesus, what the hell's going on? I said, is anybody in the truck with you? No. I said, we're searching him. Trooper on the other side is going to be opening your side door. So he jumped up, shined his light in his cab, cleared him, and then he says, what the hell's going on? I said, man, the, the sniper car is in the rest area. And I asked him, I said, you want to be a good American? And he said, yes, sir, what can I do? I said, throw your truck sideways across here as best you can. I said, I want to make sure that car does not get out of this rest area. No problem. And then before it was done, we had two more trucks behind him, all crossways. So there was no way he was getting a vehicle out of here because we had it guardrail to trees. By then, the wheels were in motion to get a SWAT team ready. The closest exit west of the rest stop has a McDonald's, so that parking lot was used as the sniper team's staging area. One SWAT unit was on patrol that morning in Montgomery County. Jeff Nice of the Montgomery County Police was driving around along with First Sergeant Keith Runk who at the time commanded the Maryland State Police SWAT unit, and Charles Pierce, a supervisor with the FBI's elite hostage rescue team. Those three had spent a lot of time together during the previous three weeks, so in spite of being from different agencies, they had developed a strong chemistry and were mission ready. The trio was responding to one of the many bogus calls from someone claiming to be the sniper when they were notified of the Capri sighting on I-70. They got a second call that they should drive to a high school in Rockville so they could be taken by helicopter to the rest area in Frederick. They realized they were preparing for the real thing. They picked up their gear at the high school and boarded the helicopter. The flight lasted 16 minutes. They didn't want to waste a single second while in the air. Runk knew the layout of the rest area the best because he was a trooper and he was always on that stretch of interstate. He briefed the team on what to expect when they got there and he used a visual aid. So I was able to 
take a piece of note paper and just draw out the layout of where the building was situated, how the parking lot and the ramps went on and off the interstate. So we drew that up. So we had that. We immediately started planning what we were going to do. The helicopter made its landing, and the three men were driven to the McDonald's parking lot. They were joined by three more FBI agents trained in SWAT tactics. They formed a six-man assault element. Meanwhile, Reichenball was talking to federal agents from the JOC on his second cell phone. He was having an issue with those who were insistent on showing up to either take over the operation or assist him. He did not want either to happen. He had had a power struggle with them the night before and wasn't interested in a sequel. Reichenball got more assertive than ever, telling all federal law enforcement that he had jurisdiction. Fed up, Reichenball called someone at the U.S. Marshals Service. The deputy he called was someone who had spent most of his law enforcement career as a Maryland State Trooper. Reichenball told his former colleague that he had control and that no federal agents or deputies should come to the scene because they would only bring tension and disruption. The ex-trooper agreed and ordered all federal agents to stand pat and not to approach the rest area. They listened. Reichenball was relieved that he finally got someone at the federal level to agree with him on something. Several members of the task force were still coming, but they agreed to leave Reichenball in charge and would hold back at the staging area a mile or so down the road. When they arrived, they could not believe how quiet it was for the entire two-mile stretch. There was barely a rumble. State police had cordoned off everything, except for the thick woods surrounding the rest area. But that really wasn't a problem. Reichenbaugh knew there was no way the snipers were going to get away on foot. I was not really concerned about them escaping that way, because you can see the way this is. And when you get back in there, it's nothing but, I call them ankle breakers, rocks. It's your typical Western Maryland sort of a rocky type surface. And in the middle of the night, not knowing where they were, I wasn't concerned with them going that way. Now it was just a matter of perfect execution on the arrest. It fell on Runk to handle the reconnoiter, to scan the area, and come back with detailed intel. I got into one of our troopers' cars, drove up to the rest stop, and did a scout of where the vehicle was. Looked into the parking lot, went up the hill, uh, low crawled up and laid down, looked, got a look at the vehicle, where it was situated, how it was parked, looked around very quick, came back down the hill, went back to the staging area. The entrance ramp to the rest area led straight to the parking lot, but it looped past the Caprice, which would have given away the team's position. So the shortest access to the suspect's car was on foot, starting from the halfway point of the entrance ramp. It worked out well, because the tree line would conceal them until they were roughly 20 yards from the car. So the team had a good idea of the lay of the land and the space between the car and tree line. The assault team started carrying out practice runs in the McDonald's parking lot. There was actually a hill leading up to the lot, and the police cruiser they used was a caprice. So their practice runs were pretty close reenactments of the real thing, or so they hoped. By 3.30 a.m., the six-member SWAT team was ready. Police and FBI snipers were lined up in the woods in case a shootout erupted, and that seemed very possible. 
The assault team was driven to the spot along that steep incline. They climbed the hill and cut quietly through the woods and had the caprice in their sights. The general consensus was that we were going to be in a hell of a firefight with them. Three were in a line heading for one side of the car, and three formed another line going to the other side. For each team of three, the one in front would break the windows. The one behind him would serve as the extractor, while the one in the back would act as a shooter. The shooters were there to provide cover in case the snipers opened fire on them. Runk and Nice were the designated shooters. The front passenger would be pulled out through the left side of the car and the backseat occupant through the right. Pierce told the guys in front not to turn on their lights until the last moment. The team had a lot to mentally prepare for. The suspects were armed and their windows were tented. The key was likely in the ignition, which meant the snipers could go mobile in a matter of seconds if they suspected trouble. We were set up behind two trees, 30 yards from the tree line to the back of the car. And then we held, once the snipers were in position, Chuck Pierce did the countdown. We did the approach, walked up. I say walked, we were moving pretty quick. When they got to the car, the two team members in front smashed the windows and turned on their lights. They yelled orders at the suspects to show their hands. Malvo was asleep on his right side, facing the rear of the car. One of the FBI agents grabbed him and pulled him out. Mohammed sat up and raised his hands. Two other team members pulled him out of the car. Reichenball was close enough to watch the takedown. Those two, you, you would have sworn if you didn't know any better, they had wings because they flew through the windows <laughs> out of that car by SWAT team guys thrown to the ground, and immediately cuffed. Nice and Rusk had the car covered. Pierce grabbed the key out of the ignition. Just like that, it was over. No shots were fired. Runk just kept staring at the suspects. They didn't say a word. They just had like that thousand-yard stare. No emotion. It was just eerie. There was this stone-cold emotion, nothing. Reichenbaugh and another trooper who were near the exit ramp, ran over after the suspects were cuffed and searched. Muhammad and Malvo were seated on the sidewalk with their hands behind their bags. They were situated so they could not see each other. One trooper was standing over Muhammad, aiming his rifle at him, while another was doing the same near Malvo. A canine handler was also close to Malvo. According to Reichenbaugh, expressions on both suspects could not have been more juxtaposed. Here he is talking about Muhammad's expression. And as I looked at him, you could see the fear in his eyes, without a doubt. There was no doubt in my mind he knew he was done, and I got the impression he was probably surprised that he was still breathing air. By comparison, Malvo was eerily composed in spite of what was in front of him, a snarling 100-pound attack dog. When I walked over here to Malvo, he had that shark face look. He wasn't intimidated at all. You know what I mean? And I had a SWAT team guy with a machine gun. I had, at that point, you see Poffenberger with his canine, and the dog was on his back legs, snarling, barking, and slobber flying this far from Malvo's face. There wasn't a change in the expression. I've never seen anything like that. I spoke to Jeff Nice recently, and he told me that Malvo may have appeared calm to Reichenbaugh and others there but he could see some panic in him. Malvo also had shards of glass stuck in his hair 
and the lights were reflecting off those pieces of glass, as well as the sweat that was beating down his face. It's an image imprinted in Nice's memory. It was up to the scene commander to confirm to the task force that the snipers were captured and secured. I had the flyers with me, and of course on the radio they're, can you confirm, can you confirm, can you, like every 10 seconds, and I'm like, give me a chance here. So we had it up, and as I told you, we had them sitting, and I basically put the flyer up beside each one of them, and then I confirmed, I said, we got them, confirmed identities, and it was like a silence, all of a sudden the radios went silent. And that's the first time I felt like I've, I've been able to breathe since, <laughs> since it started at 11.30 at night. That radio silence he mentioned was not followed by cheers and high fives. And to hear Reichenbaugh tell it, there was just a big sense of relief that the operation was over without anyone being killed. No one was feeling celebratory, not at that moment. Donahue was personally thanked by a major with the state police, and he was told he could go home. By then, it was 5.30 in the morning. He drove home and woke up his wife, who was irritated. She told her husband that he'd better have a good reason to get home so late and wake her up so early. Donahue started laughing and then told his wife about his uniquely crazy morning. The snipers were transported to an undisclosed location in Montgomery County. They were taken in separate state police cruisers. During the trip to Montgomery, each cruiser had two FBI agents on either side of the suspect and a trooper in the front seat. Malvo slept during the ride. Muhammad stayed awake, but said nothing. A search warrant was needed to collect evidence from inside the Caprice, and it was signed by a federal judge. The forensics team noticed the back seat was altered. To access the trunk space from the back seat, the seat flipped upward. Normally, it folds down. After they flipped the seat, detectives found what they were looking for, the Bushmaster rifle. The somber and serious mood among everyone at the scene changed after that rifle was discovered and removed from the car. No one could keep their emotions bottled up after that. People began cheering. The car still had to be searched more thoroughly, and the parking lot of a rest stop wasn't the place for that, so the car was loaded into an enclosed trailer and driven to a police facility in Montgomery County. The rifle still had to be test-fired, so it was taken to the ATF lab, the same one that had run all the tests on all the bullets that were extracted from the bodies of the victims. The one who performed the test was Walter Dandridge, the chief ballistics examiner at ATF. I think I was called in from home. We test-fired the firearm, took two test fires. We took the bullets and put them on a comparison microscope. Dandridge looked carefully through the lens for a few moments. Then he looked up and announced that he had a match. Matches were confirmed in 11 of the 14 shootings. The evidence gathering was just getting started, but it was off to a great start. But there was the question of who would prosecute the snipers first. Would it be Montgomery County? Would it be the U.S. Attorney's Office? Teamwork was not always easy for the law enforcement agencies that were involved in capturing the snipers. It would prove to be even harder for the prosecuting agencies. In spite of that, and in spite of the breadth of investigative work that still had to be done, preparation for the trial for John Allen Muhammad was done with remarkable speed, less than a year after his capture. And it would overlap with Malvo's trial, 
and neither trial would be short on drama. Coming up on Chasing Ghosts, the hunt for the DC snipers. The feds were furious, sources say. Death penalty is reserved for the worst of the worst, and we think and Mr. Muhammad fell in that category. Politics and prosecutions don't mix, so it got really, really ugly. Chasing Ghosts is presented by Law and Crime. Music and production by Corey Hiltman. All 911 and dispatch calls were provided by the National Law Enforcement Museum in Washington, D.C. You may follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Holt Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. Chasing Ghosts is available on Law and Crime's website, as well as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get podcasts.